Hello, and welcome to a historically reanimated episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be reviewing 2006's Night at the Museum. We'll jump into our five points of inspection with demographics, Rick Roll, On Display, Father of the Year, and A Whole New World. Before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. Hey, uh, hey, man, I was uh, helping a customer with some questions they had about the website, and I noticed the banner now says Hollywood Chop Shop and Co. Are we bringing on a new partner? Nah, man, but I was thinking we should, like, expand in other ways, right? Uh, how so? Well, I'm thinking we're losing out on some demographics, like some customer base-wise. Take senior citizens, for example. The Buicks need work done, right? Yeah, I mean, we've worked on Buicks. What's stopping them? Older people might feel intimidated, so I was thinking if we gave them a little corner over in the waiting room, you know, it, it might help them feel more comfortable here. Have some Matlock, uh, maybe a Dick Van Dyke show playing, maybe a little mini fridge with some Insure, you know, just something to make them feel more at home. I I don't know, man. I, I don't see the point. Hey, I get it. Why cater to people who only have a few years of business left? That's why I'm thinking we buy the vacant lot next door, clean it up, and put in a playground. A, a playground? That seems like it'll cost and quite a bit. I found this site where you can email them pictures of buildings and cars, hell, even people, and they'll take they'll make miniatures, right? Wouldn't it be cool? Shop inside of this big Hollywood chop shop. Uh, that how's that going to attract new customers? We could have little mini figures of us posted up inside. Are you drunk? <laughs> no, dumb dumb. Okay, well, I'm going to sober up and, and, and then we can review Not at the Museum. Larry, a failed inventor, tries to prove to his son that he's not just an ordinary guy. With the looming threat of yet another eviction, Larry looks for any job that will allow him to keep partial custody of his son, leading him to reluctantly take a position as a night guard at a natural history museum. It's not long before Larry realizes there's more to this job as exhibits begin to come to life while a plot to rob the museum of its greatest treasure comes to light. Can the embodiment of Teddy Roosevelt motivate Larry to finally accomplish something, or is history doomed to repeat itself? Alrighty, Travis, before we jump into five points of inspection, I'd love to hear a quick diagnostic from you. What did you think of this movie? Uh, I, I think you might have an idea. As we previously discussed, we don't really plan these out together. We don't talk about the movies. I did have to text you last night and just let you know how <laughs> upset I was with you for picking this movie. That being said, there's a lot to talk about. So that's not a bad thing. Not necessarily a good movie, but maybe a good podcast. What did you think? So not to tip my hand too much, I think in terms of a family-friendly movie, this is on the better end. 
um, it's not a movie that I would ever go and randomly pick of myself. Of 2006 or in general? I guess of 2006. Like, oh. I think we have a certain level of nostalgia for family-friendly movies of the 90s. Plus, we've said 90s family-friendly movies were a little bit darker. Like, Mrs. Doubtfire has a very dark, like, sub-context to it for the adults. Um, for a, a 2000s family or beyond family-friendly movie, I think that this is a... It's a decent family-friendly movie like here's the thing i would never want to watch this movie just on a whim by myself but if my daughter said hey i want to watch night of the museum with you i wouldn't be like oh fuck not this movie i'd be like okay i, I you can wouldn't watch say this let's watch you. jumanji instead if i could convince her to but at the same time having a kid doesn't mean you get to choose so if she said she wanted to watch Night of the Museum, I would not roll my eyes and groan. I'd be like, okay, I can tolerate this one. Because there's plenty of children's or family movies out there where it's like, okay, I'm I'm taking one for the team watching this. So I'm not going to say by any means this was a great movie, but I think in terms of a, if you're putting it in the frame of a, I might have to watch this with my child or niece, nephew, or some you know, younger family member because they want to watch it. I don't think this is the worst movie in the mo in the world you could have to watch. So that's my frame oh. of reference coming into this. Well, let me ask you a question, and it may lead into one of our topics potentially on display, but not talking about the character, Larry, the actor, Ben Stiller. I think I could have gone with this more and agreed with you, like, hey, if I had a, a kid or a younger relative who wanted to watch this, I think I would I would have your same reaction if it were not Ben Stiller in the lead. So do, do you want to talk about Ben Stiller at all? All right, so yeah, let's go ahead. That's a great opportunity to jump into five points of inspection. So as we said in kind of the pre-read, um, you know, demographics, Rick Roll, On Display, Father of the Year, and A Whole New World are kind of our, our five – um, you know, headers here. So um, I think this is a great time to kind of look at at, at on display because essentially with this one, we wanted to kind of talk about, you know, Dick Van Dyke, Robin Williams, Owen Wilson. I, I just think just the cast overall as they play against Ben Stiller. And I don't know about you, but my personal opinion was Ben Stiller is overshadowed by all of those performances. And granted, I have a, you know, a little bit of a love affair for Owen Wilson. I love a lot of stuff he does. Um, so even if I don't think he was the best in this, I still think his character and his performance was more entertaining than Ben Stiller. I just think that there were a lot of performances in this movie of the, the different people that played, you know, historical figures and stuff like that throughout the museum. They were much more engaging than Ben Stiller, who was our protagonist. And I don't know if you agree or not. I a hundred percent agree. I, I thought just, I'll put this out there so I don't forget why didn't Brendan Fraser get cast in this movie instead of Ben Stiller? I mean, you it might have been, had like a little bit of a mummy tie-in. I wonder if and that time just, it, Brendan Fraser. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm wondering if that time if Brendan Fraser was going through his medical problems. Because I mean, wasn't this just two years after Crash? It might have been. Um, oh, it is. It is. I know it yeah. is. Yeah, it would have been right about I'm just that saying time. That, yeah kind of change would work because I like Ben Stiller in comedy, but I like him when he's an asshole, mm -hmm. you know, Zoolander or dodgeball. Yeah. I don't like this every man bumbling 
thing he's trying to do in this movie. And you mentioned Dick Van Dyke. Like, I much would have rather seen this movie through the eyes of the three security guards. Like, tell their story. Oh, I, yeah, I thought all of them were actually wonderful and engaging. Dick Van Dyke in this movie, I think, just in general, was like, it reminds me of, like, man, I kind of wish Dick Van Dyke was an actor during, like, the heyday of when I was, you know, watching media and stuff like that, because I've never gone back and watched the Dick Van Dyke show, but his performance in this movie is is very entertaining. Like, I would have loved to have seen him in his prime in the 2000s, you know? Yeah, he's got such great charisma. I, I couldn't help but think of, like, Burt Lancaster and The Professionals. So even at his advanced age when he filmed this, and he's still alive, by the way, I still would have rather seen a movie led by a senior than, than Ben Stiller in this movie. Uh, so we can talk about some of the other performances, but I thought Ben Stiller absolutely was the weak link. Absolutely. I think, I mean, Robin Williams another classic veteran actor i mean obviously not to the degree of dick van dyke but robin williams is i mean is, is a powerhouse and he's in here as teddy roosevelt and fantastic performances teddy, like teddy roosevelt's fun like you almost just want a movie where you're you're following robin williams as teddy roosevelt like he is a motivational character i think the way that even if he's not necessarily historical accurate to have teddy roosevelt well was i think he's a very engaging character and, and very forthright i mean he is basically the yoda of this movie i guess you could say like especially with the line where he's like listen i'm just made of wax i didn't actually do anything that teddy roosevelt did he goes but you you're a man this is your opportunity to step up i just think teddy roosevelt in this movie is fantastic and he's so much fun to watch and and, even his you know robin williams portrayal again as i'm echoing this like bully like just when he scares him twice in the movie like robin williams is so engaging and you just want more and more of him on the screen and even owen wilson's again i love his you know as him as the what was it jed jedediah and all that like he's just entertaining and fun to watch on the screen and ben stiller i mean he's not even a good job of just being being a bland avatar for you to project onto like he's just kind of a bland character like he's not even an avatar where it's like okay he's just meant to be somebody as a stand-in so that me as the audience can experience this with him because he's supposed to have a certain level of personality and what he's going through but even his you know overcoming everything and and basically standing up and and you know he becomes you know you know man's up or whatever you want to you know a term you want to use for it doesn't necessarily feel earned for me at the end when he finally does the big speech and gets everybody getting you know to go after the uh the three security guards as they're stealing everything like it just it didn't necessarily feel earned for me and i don't know if that's the character how it was written or just ben stiller's performance as a whole is just kind of a wacky zany person who i didn't relate or care about no i think you nailed it he's he's a wacky zany character that i don't care about but he's supposed to be the lead of a movie and he's way too passive. Everything happens to him. Even when he saves the day at the end, I'm like, I don't really think you saved the day. I I rolled very hard at the stagecoach chase because it just felt un- so unnatural for the character of Larry that we'd seen throughout the movie before that. Well, it's not only like that, but it's 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 taken away with him chasing him down because at the end of the day, okay, so he stops. Uh, what was the name? Of the the security guard, Dick Van Dyke's character, it's like Craig or Cecil. Cecil, I think think it was Cecil. Cecil, yeah, Cecil. So he chases down Cecil and all that. So he captures, he stops Cecil and gets the tablet. 
But that itself is not what wins the day. Basically, he has to wind up giving the tablet to Remy Malik, and Remy Malik is the MacGuffin that basically fixes everything at the end. Because I'm like, there's no way for Ben Stell's character to actually save the day. All he was able to do was to retrieve the tablet so that Remy Malik was able to save the day. So even that doesn't feel like, oh, wow, he really stepped up and, and took care of this. It's, okay, he was a, you know, a, a piece in the chess, the chessboard to get it to Remy Malik so that Remy Malik could actually use his Egyptian magic powers to actually get everybody to go back to the the museum because without that Ben Stiller everything would have vaporized and Ben Stiller would have lost his job like so I just even thought that the MacGuffin took so much away from Ben Stiller's character Larry in his his overarching like growth moment because even though he went and tried you know oh he didn't quit and he you know he pursued Cecil and got it back that still didn't ultimately save the day it was just a you know a, a component of what had to happen well not only that he was still going to get fired. Thank God it was snowing and the T-Rex could leave footprints mm -hmm. because otherwise you're just relying on painting in a subway to generate interest. So even the interest that's generated in the museum is an accident. Really is an accident and only happened because he's a fucker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just, it is so weird to me Ben Stiller being cast in this and I don't know if it was him because I'm trying to think of what else Ben Stiller was doing so I looked at Brendan Fraser basically he did Crash in 2004 and everything he did after that uh he went through a spell where until 2008 when he did Journey to the Center of the Earth there was like a four-year period where everything I'm seeing is is nothing I recognize he did King of the Hill which was a TV series Journey to the End of the Night the last oop Sorry, IMDb moved on me here. Um, the Last Night, I believe, was one of them. Um, this was all between Crash and Night at the Museum? This is all between Crash and Journey to the Center of the Earth. And then he did Big Bug Man and uh, The Air I Breathe. So there was a four-year period where it didn't seem like he did a whole lot of like actual big like Hollywood budget movies. Oh, and that's then, probably when he got blacklisted, but that's probably a topic for a different podcast. Yeah, and then 2008, he wound up coming back for the third Mummy movie, and then um, it looks like he did a little bit more and then kind of got, like, disappeared again, and now he's making his second renaissance. So um, to your point, Brendan Fraser, I think, would have been a much more interesting character in this, but at the same time, it seems like that might have been, like, an, a weird time for him in Hollywood, whereas Ben Stiller around this time, um, let's see, 2006, he did Dodgeball in 2004, 2006 he did, oh wait a second, I must be looking at producer, yes, I was going to say, none of those make any sense whatsoever, <laughs> um, so in 2006 he does uh, School for Scoundrels, Tenacious D, Not of the Museum, A Family Guy episode, The Heartbreak Kid. Actually, that's an R-rated movie. Like, he's still doing some some weird stuff. Tropic Thunder was 2008. So, like, I I don't know. This is a weird time. He's he's just coming off of Madagascar. Um, I could see why he was cast. I mean, he was box yeah. office gold at this point, but I don't think this role was right for him. No, I I agree. I don't I don't think it was either. It it was a little too quirky and weird. Or he was a little too quirky and weird for him to be this dad who's just trying to get by. And even to that point, I mean, I think of like the movie Envy, where he is an inventor, an envious in inventor, you know, across from Jack Black. And it just doesn't, he doesn't feel right in this role at all. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, were there any of the other side performances you wanted to talk about before we uh, take it to maybe Father of the Year to talk about Ben Stiller's actual character? Um, I'm trying to think if there was anybody else who really stood out for me. Um, just in terms of, I thought it was weird that Paul Rudd was in this movie at all. Um, cause he has basic, I, I would almost just call it a cameo, but, um, yeah, I saw him in the cast and I thought, and even when he's first introduced, I thought they was going to be the, my stepdad's better than you storyline, but they really don't use that much. No, which we'll jump into that with father of the year. So they, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into father of the year. Yeah, I think I have a lot of very specific complaints. Like there was a series of events where I was like, no wonder you're a fuck up and you're still a fuck up and you're making bad decisions. But I know this movie's going to let you off the hook. Mm -hmm. But did you have any higher level stuff or do you want me to get into that real quick and maybe you can jump off? So we can jump into the, the fuck up situations. I do just want to say I do like in this movie because I can't think of a whole lot of examples aside from this and where ultimately – you have divorced parents and a kid in the middle and that it is not a situation in which mom and dad absolutely hate each other's guts. Like it seemed like it was, it was amicable and that basically like they still enjoyed each other's company and they were still friends, Larry and Nick's mother. Um, I did think it kind of, and even that to the point, it played more into Larry's character as a whole that Larry just basically quits like, it's not necessarily that Larry's a bad husband so much as Larry just didn't feel like actually putting in the work to be a good husband. So that when his wife ultimately said, like, I'm kind of thinking of a divorce, I was like, OK, if you want to leave, that's fine. You know, let's let's leave on good terms rather than actually trying to work at it. So I thought that actually played well to Larry's character as he is portrayed in the movie. Um, and then again, just overall, I thought it was it was refreshing to not see, you know, that trope where it's I hate the. I hate stepdad and stuff like, and you could see his insecurities around Paul Rudd's character. Um, but you know, when he makes the joke about Paul Rudd having basically the, you know, the bat belt of, of cell phones, could he put more on there? And, and the wife winds up laughing and like, or, you know, the, the mother winds up laughing and saying like, you stop it. Like to me again, it just, it made it look like there was not as much animosity between the two of them. And it was just, again, kind of interesting to see that. Cause that's not typically the way that that is portrayed in a movie. So I, I did think that that was kind of refreshing. Yeah, I did appreciate that. And anytime the wife, and I apologize, I did not write down her character name, but the only time she comes after Ben Stiller as Larry is when it's in defense of their child. Like, he cannot handle another disappointment. So, yeah, the conflict did arise from genuine concern from the for the child instead of, let's snipe at my ex. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I did appreciate that, and that's a good point. Um, that yeah, being said, though. Yeah, now we want to jump into just Larry as a character. We can jump into him as a father. I will just say Larry as a character I thought was, like, it's so weird, his motivations. Like, to me, the biggest example of Larry just being a complete fucking moron is he's worked at the job for three days, and he's now trying to convince Rebecca that everything in the museum, and his kid, Nick, that oh. everything in the museum <laughs> comes to life. I'm like, it, you've literally had this job for three days. Like, why like you will look like a crazy person at this point like i don't understand why this is what you're you're jumping at you're you know both feet in the museum is is magical and you're not like gonna try and figure this like he just takes magical wax teddy roosevelt's word at its at its you know face value like oh he says it's this tablet make everybody come to life that makes sense to me because i'm an inventor <laughs> you know 
yeah, you, you gave a slight hint to my chop shop, so I'm glad that that's where your mind went, too. I will say, the movie handled the scene where he tells Carlo Giugino's character that everything's alive. I was like, how could she not immediately call the cops or just <laughs> run away? They did do a good job of having her have the one reaction that I could believe, like, oh, you're just making fun of me. Mm-hmm. But that scene was still terrible. Yeah. It's but I want to talk a little bit about some of his other decision-making. Okay. Because I forgot, like you it's only been three days. Yeah, this, this, the span of this movie is three days. So he's a night security guard at a museum. His boss, Ricky Gervais, which we're going to talk about later, he's not aware of the nature of the museum. In fact, no one is, right? It's just mm. Larry. No, because there's no security cameras or anything in the entire establishment. <laughs> that's that's a very good point. So when Ricky Gervais comes down on him, he's coming down on a guy who appeared to be in an empty museum all night and decided to just spray the <laughs> Cro-Magnon man exhibit with a fire extinguisher. Yep. He fires him. Ricky Gervais fires Larry. And Larry literally de delivers this line of dialogue. I think I finally know how to do this job. And I was watching the movie and I was like, this job? The job is to stay in a museum overnight and make sure no one breaks in or call somebody if there's a water leak. Right. This is not quantum computing. You're not doing something in incredibly complex. The fact that he can just say, I think I finally know how to do this job, which again, it's day two at this point. It was dumb. Okay. Ricky Gervais gives him another chance. So the next night, let's go ahead and try to sneak my son into the museum. <laughs> Hide in the security room. If no one will look in there. Yeah. One last chance. Perfect time to try to sneak your kid in. I, I was just like, yeah, this dude seems like a fuck-up. Thank God he found a magical museum, or I guess he would just always be a fuck-up, because as we said, he really did nothing. Well, I also love the idea, like, I, you know, in the data world and all that, nothing is a trend until it, it happens three times in a row, at which point you can call it a trend. So at this point, it hasn't even been a trend, the magical museum night. Like, it's happened twice, and now he is confident enough to not only tell his son— who already thinks he's a fuck up and a failure and should just be an ordinary guy. But he also tells his coworker, Rebecca that, Oh yeah, no, no, no. You should stay because the whole place is like, I like I'm self-aware enough to realize. And <laughs> sorry, that was my other favorite part. It's like, he won't tell his 10 year old son what it is. Cause his 10 year old son won't believe him. He'll think he's crazy, but he will tell his coworker, Rebecca, no, no, no. I'm going to sound crazy, but trust me, the museum comes to life. And I'm like, the 10-year-old son is going to be way more likely to believe this story than Rebecca, but your logic is backwards. Like, no, the adult will definitely believe that there's the potential of a magical tablet that will make the entire place come to life. But my 10-year-old son will find that too far-fetched. Yeah, and again, thank God the movie handled the scene with the co-worker so well, because at that point, my immersion was completely broken. I was like, yeah, I would be backing up slowly, and seeing if I had like some sort of mace or pocket knife. <laughs> it's a 
It's also, I know we're in the wrong segment for this, and I'll, I also just, while it's on the top of my head, I love the logic of the museum is broken because essentially, what was Rumi Malik's character? Uh, he was Ak... Achman Raw. Dude, don't Ra. even try. Yeah, he was Achman Raw. He learns to be British, which I think was a wonderful throwaway line. Why he didn't have to try and pretend to have an Egyptian <laughs> uh, accent or anything like that. Like, oh, I was in Cambridge, so I learned English there. I'm like, okay, but then how come Attila the Hun didn't learn English? And how come all of the wax like characters, the magical tablet also gives them the entire memory of the character that they're based off or a historical figure they're based off of. Like, I don't like the logic of the tablet doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. But again, I understand it's a family friend. It's supposed to be a family movie. It doesn't necessarily have to, but I'm like, there's a certain level of like, this makes literally no sense at all. Why certain things happen and certain things don't, because again, you have a MacGuffin. It's just like, Oh, it's a golden tablet and whatever we need it to do to make the movie make partial sense is what we're going to do. Yeah. I mean, you say that, but when it's convenient for the joke, until the hun clearly understands English. Well, also as for convenient for the joke, Ben Stiller learns, I don't know, Huttonese. I don't know what the, the language would be, but at a certain point, he learns enough language that he can communicate with Attila the Hun. And I, sees did you him. take that as him learning the language? Yes. I thought he was just trying to mimic the sounds. I think it's when he was singing the song to him and then they talk about tearing Dick Van Dyke like a little bit i'm like okay at this point he understands a little bit is understanding some of the okay, words i see what you mean okay. but it, but to me again it's like that's all that i think it's also a terrible example for children because it's basically ben stiller just doing gibberish and that's him like oh if i just speak gibberish it's me like it's not me making fun of a foreign language it'd be like the essential like, and i hate to say this but if i was like oh i'm gonna make, speak chinese ching chong ching chong i'm like no that's super racist and wrong you can't do that like and that's oh that's, that was yeah that was my the, exact thought i was like this seems like it would not fly maybe 10 years later yeah I'm like that's <laughs> who can't do that in a movie <laughs> Like, oh yeah, no. So there's there's all sorts of like weird little stuff like that. And again, just to go back to you know Father of the Year, like it is just they try and make an arc where he grows, but I just none of it feels earned. Especially because they decide to make the movie over the time span of three days, and I'm just like, how does he learn to stand up? And like basically like he's going to stand up for himself and he's not going to back down and he's going to commit to things and follow through with stuff in three days. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think I forgot that it was three days, but it just makes it even more ridiculous. So I was curious where you were going. Ricky Gervais, Rick Roll. Rick Roll. OK, so we'll, we'll jump into that. So Rick Roll. I thought for this to be a family-friendly movie, so your your primary demographic is children, right? I understand there's movies like, I think the original Shrek is a great example of there's adult jokes kind of like hidden in the movie that like, okay, so an adult can enjoy this with their children. Ricky Gervais's character as a whole did not make any sense to me for the the demographic this movie was geared towards because it is supposed to be like a kid's movie essentially right his dialogue makes no sense and the way he delivers it yes is a funny kind of joke as an as a as an adult i'm like oh he's kind of an inept or like he's an idiot yes he's dr mcphee but like 
he's not really this intellectual at all, right? You know, he he doesn't make sense with the jokes or the points he's trying to make. And, like, he very much plays, you know, when he was, he played Michael Scott in the British, um, what is it, office? Like, he kind of plays that, like, he's the boss who's, you know, somehow he's gotten to this position of power, but, like, he doesn't deserve to be there. And, like, he doesn't actually benefit or add anything to being in that position. So, like, whenever he would start doing things in his jokes about like, well, that's, you know, what I would do if I was, you know, do you hear me? You know, it's, do you get me? And like, he's not making any sense. I'm like, no child would find this funny. And like, it goes on for a while. Like the joke lasts, like they just keep piling it on. Like there's going to be a punchline. And I'm just like, the kid, this no child is going to understand why this is supposed to be funny. And I just thought it was very weird that they would have him in that role and the way he, plays dr mcphee in this movie because like it just does it feels so out of place for who the audience of this movie is supposed to be uh, well i don't want to immediately get into another topic but i think there's a pretty clear reason why he's there same reason dick van dyke is there but to talk about ricky gervais a little bit more I, i've never seen the british office uh, my frame of reference for Ricky Gervais primarily is hosting award shows and just tearing people apart. Mm-hmm. And I think he had an HBO show that we both have seen some skits from. I can't recall the name. But he's got a harder edge, mm-hmm. which is why I enjoyed Ricky Gervais. And he's got a great delivery. And it feels like in a PG movie, they knew they couldn't make him harsh. So they just instead chose to have him end every sentence mid-sentence and then start a new one. Yes. Like, did you pick that up? Like, he can't ever complete a thought because I guess they're hoping the audience will complete it. Well, And then you can get around making it anything other than PG. I, I think it's that, and it's supposed to, again, be this situation in which he plays, like, the Michael Scott, where, like, he is – he's the head of the museum – but it's funny because he's so out of his depths. Like, he shouldn't be the head of the museum because he doesn't really know what he's doing. But, like, you don't – the only reason I make that connection is because I've seen him play the Michael Scott character in the British office where I realize, like, he's playing that character very similar. So I'm like, okay, I'm making this association where he's supposed to be this character that's out of their depth and doesn't really make any sense. And like, even Ben Stiller being the ordinary guy – Still, and you know, the the failure that he is still has a one-up on Dr. McPhee because, you know, Dr. McPhee just can't really, he can't really make a point. You know, he has a hard time making the points because he's just, he's not actually as as smart. And I guess that's the punchline is like, he's a doctor because they make a point, I think, twice of him being like, I'm a doctor. I'm Dr. McPhee, like not Mr. Dr. McPhee. And like, so I feel like they're trying to make the point that, like, yes, just because you are this educated person doesn't make you actually smart or intelligent. And again, I just think it is a very weird thing to put into this movie. I, I very much feel like it is somebody saw him on the set of the British office and they're like, I really love Ricky Gervais in this. He's trying to make a name for himself in Hollywood Ricky, why don't you come over? I just want you to play that role. We're going to change the name of the character and what you're in charge of. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me in this movie. Well, you say that, and I think I'll transition to, I'm sorry, what was our box office category called? Demographics. 
demographics. It, it's another check of a box. Um, this movie clearly is geared towards children. I think we both made that clear. So you've got a built-in box office. And by having children on the hook, by definition, you're going to have parents on the hook or at least an adult to take them there and watch the movie. So you've got ticket sales there. What could juice up the box office even more? Well, hey, our global gross could grow if we have basically Michael Scott from the UK office. That's going to give us at least some traction in the UK, which if it didn't work for you, especially in 2006 when he was a little lesser known, I don't think the studio is worried about that because if this movie came out today, you'd be taking your daughter to see it. So they've already got you, mm-hmm. but let's expand the footprint. And then why cast fucking Mickey Rooney and Dick Van Dyke? Well, hey, we can make it a family event. Let's bring the grandparents and they'll get excited to see Dick Van Dyke doing Dick Van Dyke stuff. And Mickey Rooney, the the absolute corniest level of comedy that he delivers in this movie. But I'm what sure mean, that people who grew up with him loved it. Yeah. So it just I I don't want to say soulless cash grab, but they had a soulless cash grab idea, and then were like, hey, how could we weld on components that will make us even more money and. Uh, I didn't cheat on Blue Book, but it got two sequels, so I'm assuming this made a shit ton of money, so something worked. Yeah, and just to, to touch back on the whole Ricky Gervais thing, so it looks like 2001 to 2003, he was in The Office, um, where he played David Brent, which was basically Michael Scott. Um, and then, honestly, Night at the Museum was his U.S. debut as an actor. That was the first time it looks like he was really in a, a U.S. movie. So that really, I mean, to, to that point, like looking at the, the timeline, it really does feel like someone just saw him in the office. And to your point, it might have been like, OK, let's give let's put a, you know, there was some popularity with that show in the U.K. Let's get a U.K. comedian who's starting to, to get some rise and some fame. We'll put him in this role and like just we just want you to basically be David Brent. Because that's what UK audiences will respond to, you know? Yeah, and to American audiences that may not have known him, hey, he's a doctor and he's got a British accent. It works for us, at least for a lot of the audience that would go to this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even the casting, as much as I loved Robin Williams, I think Robin Williams as Teddy Roosevelt, I'd love to see if he actually wanted that role or if it kind of fell into his lap, because that's another one of those where, I mean, they really did, it seemed like, tried to surround Ben Stiller with a lot of veteran, basically a lot of veteran talent and then some up-and-coming stuff, because even at this point, I don't know if Owen Wilson had even really made a name for himself by 2000. I mean, I guess... No, he would have been a decent name because you got Wedding Crashers was around that time. Um, Royal Tenenbaums. The Royal Tenenbaums, which, you know, that's an indie darling and stuff like that. But, you know, Luke and Owen Wilson were, were definitely starting to make a little bit of a name for themselves at that point. So, but yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. The, 
I would say this is one of the most diverse casts I've seen in a lot of movies that we've done in terms of just the level of talent and then just the generational talent in this movie. Yeah, and it's in this fucking movie, unfortunately. <laughs> so with that, I think we'll jump into a whole new world because there's a little bit of a transition I see there. Because um, it's another one of those, as much as I know you hated it and I said that I think this is basically a, a status quo family-friendly movie, I will say I did appreciate that I thought this movie actually tried. In 2006, so again, this movie is, what, we're going to say 15 years old at this point. This movie, I thought, actually did a pretty decent job of trying to cast people of color. Um, and more so than I think a lot of movies at this time, because... The guy who played Attila the Hun, Patrick Gallagher, actually has an Irish and Chinese background. Um, Sacagawea, admittedly not Native American, but she was Japanese and ja Japanese and kind of an Irish um, English background. Um, Steve Coogan plays Octavius, which I'm I'm interested to know why they didn't just go with an Italian because believe it or not, Christopher Columbus was played by an Italian, even though technically he's a, a he was Portuguese, if I'm not mistaken, but. They actually did, I think, a solid job. Even Remy Malik, you know, feels like he could, you know, I don't know what his, his ethnicity is, but I feel like you could have gone f way more whitewash with this movie. And I think they actually did a decent job of trying to not do that, just looking at the casting. Like, they, they made a conscious effort to not cast a whole bunch of white actors and then throw makeup on them, you know? Eh, I mean, it's 2006. I don't think anybody was putting makeup on white people to look like different ethnicities. They might not have been putting I mean, makeup will... on them, but they would have tried to portray them. like It would have just been like, Sacagawea is a white chick and Attila the Hun. I honestly thought for a second that Attila the Hun was being played by, uh, what's his name, Andy... Fuck, what's his... Uh, Conan O'Brien's right-hand man, Andy... Richter? Andy Richter. There was a short period. I'm like, I can't believe they cast Andy Richter and put like a prosthetic nose. And then I looked at him like, okay, thank God they didn't cast Andy Richter in this role. Because I'm like, that would have been a little, a little like, why the fuck did you put Andy Richter in this movie? Uh, I, I can't go with you there. I, I, I'm not going to credit the movie for that because I just mm -hmm. think by 2006, that's what should be expected. When I talk about a whole new world, what disappointed me was the use of the museum. Have you seen the sequels? I I hope not, no. but just curious. No. I just watched uh, one and a half of the trailers for them before we started recording. Oh, okay. That's very useful. I'm glad you did that. But maybe they expand on it in the two sequels. I thought there was a missed opportunity with the museum to try to break up the monotony of the look of the movie to me, it just feels like it's Ben Stiller getting chased down hallways or running down hallways and really the same three or four hallways mm -hmm. for an hour and a half. Well, especially because they, they, you know, there's the, the reptile exhibit, which you see a ton of signage for at one point, there's an aquatic exhibit that, Dick Van Dyke, Cecil winds up in and gets blown out of. So I'm like, oh, that was a whole nother wing of the museum we never yes. saw. Yeah. Yeah, I thought until the end of the movie, they didn't bother to try to change setting or mood or location. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. Like, you have miniatures in 
you know, period correct settings, why not just cut a little bit to what they're doing from their eyes? Like, honey, honey, I shrunk the kids. I thought there should have been a little more of a point of view from the smaller characters. If for nothing else, you could change the look of the movie dramatically and it would still make sense. Mm hmm. Well, and to, I mean, it's kind of adjacent to that. What I would have much rather seen, I just think narratively would have made more sense. And again, it would have extended as the only reason I can think the reason they put it for three days is because they needed the old crew to come in and steal the tablet very quickly after leaving, which again, it's a weird conflict that that's what the conflict ultimately is in the movie rather than just having Ben Stiller become a leader of the museum at night. Um, but I would have much rather had a really nice montage of him like studying the different things that happened in the museum and then succeeding and failing. Like just a, like maybe it would have been a, a longer montage, but like to me, we got the montage of him learning essentially everything he needed about all of the characters he comes across in essentially an afternoon, because again, the movie takes place over three days. So he has the first day where he fails miserably, the second day where he decides he's going to stay and reads apparently you know 12 different college level you know uh books you know just thick books about different things in the internet and comes back that night in order to to try and you know remedy things and that he's gonna outsmart everybody but i'm like i thought it would be a much more interesting thing if it's like okay he's dealing with the you know the miniatures and he he's learning about the the western you know manifest destiny in the the roman empire and then in the mint- montage, it's him trying to evaluate both of those and failing, and then succeeding and stuff like. And like it would have been, it would have, to your point, it would have changed the pace of the movie, and I think would have been more interesting to watch him. Like, okay, now we're seeing him try something, fail, try, succeed, try, fail, try, succeed, and it would have felt more like he was actually learning something as opposed to he just kind of accidentally fell into everything, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a runtime wasted on hijinks. Yeah, like little dumb like I wrote down last night when I was watching it slap the monkey like there are three or four scenes that just go on for way too long and it just relies on physical comedy like I know to small children the keys gag might be fun but there's a way to use this runtime more efficiently that rewards not just the youngest of the audience well, in the slap the monkey, it's like as soon as he was slapping the monkey, I'm like, oh, are they going to make a sex joke here? And then Teddy Roosevelt comes in, why are you slapping the monkey, son? And I'm like, okay, ha, ha, ha. Like the slapstick of him slapping the monkeys for the kid and then the sexual innuendo is supposed to be for the adult. Unfortunately, neither of them were funny, right? Exactly. So. But yeah. Teddy- Sorry, my cat's now being Jack Nicholson <laughs> chopping down the fucking door. <laughs> Here's Bunny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do, do, and I don't know if it is they were just trying to keep a tighter runtime or like you already had so much going on in the museum in the background of like characters and like, you know, I think there were, you know, um, Eskimos or Inuits like walking in the background, which you never have any interaction with or whatsoever. I'm like, so I don't know if it was a matter of like they had to kind of pick and choose, but to your point, like, you could have changed the lighting. Like, everything had a very warm lighting going through the museum. Like, if you had gone, if something had been, like, a deep-sea diver or something like that in that, you know, underwater area, it would have been a blue 
area and it would have changed the color and the atmosphere and the only difference i can really think of in the entire museum is when he walks into the egyptian exhibit and it's just it's still warm but there's a lot of darkness in there like you've you know journeyed into a tomb or something like that but it's still a very warm scene to that degree um so there is not a whole lot of variation in color or even scenery in this movie yeah i just don't understand why you choose to do night at the museum and you want to rely on the fact that, Oh, Hey, we can have Teddy Roosevelt. We can have Attila the Hun. We can have Sacagawea, but you don't also apply that logic to how the movie is shot. Mm-hmm. I, I think if this were done by, I don't want to say a skilled director, because if you're directing at this level, there's a ton of skill involved but a more creative and a more risk-taking kind of director could have really made this movie. You kind of said, Hey, for a post 2000 family movie, it's good. It does the job. I think it could have elevated to like a toy story level. Well, where as an adult, I would legitimately enjoy watching it, but the lack of creativity behind the camera, along with bad casting for the lead just dooms this movie. Yeah, and even then, like, there's some real opportunities for some real suspense that are lost, like when he first comes across the dinosaur, the T-Rex. Like, that should have been a much more suspenseful scene going on, and it it still felt kind of clump, like, you know, slapstick comedy, or, you know, literally there's a line, it's like, feed the lions or they'll eat you. And there's no real sense of danger or, like, him roaming through the, you know, the jungle exhibit and being hunted or anything like that. Like, oh, my God, there could, there's actual danger here. Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunity like that where it's just, like, it's, it's disappointing, yeah, that they didn't take more chances to actually add some suspense to the Any movie. chances. Yeah. So. Well, do you have any? Hey, that's all I got. Yeah, if you don't have anything else to really about the five points here, I think we can go ahead and jump into some Chop Shop. This week, I had comedy, which I know a lot of people are thinking, like, well, you don't typically do the thing. But in our, our six categories that we go into, we have, was it horror, family-friendly, comedy, blockbuster, miniseries, and Oscar bait. Oscar bait. Oscar bait. So whenever we do these movies, we try and classify them as one, take that one out of the mix, and then scramble the other five. So we felt that this was more in tune with being a family-friendly movie. So comedy wound up still being in the mix. So I wound up getting comedy. Travis, you got miniseries with this one. I'm going to pass it to you. Who do you want to start Hot Chop Shop this week? I think you should lead it off. Uh, you mentioned off-air that you wanted a more collaborative experience, maybe to flesh out the comedy. Uh, my particular chop shop is mini series. So it's going to be lengthy. So I would rather uh, work on yours before I commit the brain power to read this novel that I wrote. <laughs> okay. So I have the general synopsis of how I would change this more into, I guess a 
PG, I guess you could say PG-13 comedy. I don't know, just more comedy elements and less about the family-friendly side of things. I don't think I mention him having a kid at all in this, so I also kind of helped remove that family-friendliness out of it because there's no family element. But ultimately, as we're pitching this, you know, I tried to convert this more into a comedy. My main senses are uh, places of inspiration were The Truman Show, Cabin in the Woods, and Biodome. Um, and again, there might not be heavy elements from all of those, but you'll kind of see where I'm going, what, how they all influenced my my comedy here as I go through it. So ultimately, you know, we're going to start off very similar where Larry is a failed inventor. He's a man out of his luck, but realizes that he has to go and get a, a job in order to because uh, he you know risks being evicted, which, again, I think is also funny in this movie he's about to be evicted he gets a job and the next day apparently he's not going to be evicted anymore like it takes at least two weeks to get a paycheck dude so i don't know exactly how that immediately remedied itself but nonetheless we'll get into this so he's got to get a job so he winds up taking this position at the museum so sorry i don't mean to interrupt you this early but is he the same age as he is in this movie you said you're yeah. removing the family element yeah yeah he's he's still you know He's he's failed at multiple attempts of, of trying to create some kind of invention. So again, he he wants to be in the spotlight. He wants fame. Uh, he's just been unable to. But he's like thirty eight, yeah, forty well, that range. Yeah, we'll say that. You know. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't want to say past his prime because anybody has an opportunity to reinvent themselves. But knowing Larry and his work ethic, it seems like he should probably put in you know put in the towel. So we wind it. He takes up this job. The big change is. This museum is not actually going to be magical. All right, he does take the night, uh, what is it, security guard position. But what winds up happening is that this is actually a giant experiment by the marketing department to see how people would interact if they were to think that history were to come alive, you know, these living exhibits. And they've decided to test it on him because no one else is around. It's just him, so they have a very focused te test subject. They've decided that, you know, based on his, his resume and everything, that he's the perfect example of, of someone they would want to try and engage, right? So they, they, they do all this, um, but uh, as they're doing all this and they're filming it and all that, someone in the, in the booth, in the marketing booth, winds up accidentally hitting the stream button, right? So what should have been a controlled experiment with that they were recording winds up somehow now being live streamed over like a YouTube or a Twitch or something like that. Um, the video begins to start generating a ton of positive exposure for the museum. This is another reason why I don't want him to have a family is because I need it to be where like he's not really a tech savvy person. He's not on the internet all the time, so he wouldn't necessarily see this was going on like he's getting uh, popular, but starts to generate a ton a positive exposure for the museum and attendance starts to skyrocket again he's the night security guard so he doesn't see that all of a sudden like you know make some offhand comment about like oh there's a lot more people here that's weird why um so as the the marketing department realizes that more people are coming to the museum because of you know them watching him interact with all these live exhibits and watching like what would a, the normal person how would they react if they thought you know exhibits were coming to to life at night because he's not going to tell anybody because he thinks he's, you know, that would be crazy. Unlike Larry in this movie, he realizes he would be, you know, admitted to the, the loony bin if he starts telling people the museum is coming to life after three days on the job. So 
Attendance continues to come up, so the marketing team continues to make more and more elaborate live exhibits. So, like, it's one of those things, like, before maybe it was just, like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt gets swapped out with a live actor, so he thinks Teddy Roosevelt actually came to not came to life, and now maybe they're using more, gra- you know, CG stuff, or, you know, holographic Tupac. I don't know. Different stuff. That's where I'm going to want you to kind of help me as after I get to the end, like, what are some of the hijinks, some of the different things they can set up. But ultimately, uh... Larry is going to find or find out what's going on because someone is going to notice him on the street and they're going to be like, oh, my God, you're the can museum I, guy. What? I'm sorry. Can I interject real quick? Because yeah. I don't know if I'll have the thought by the end of the chop shop. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you absolutely have to introduce into this movie is a side character that's playing Attila or... Uh, the guy from Egypt or Teddy Roosevelt, anybody, but they're a struggling actor who feels like they're being disrespected (laughs) and they get cast in this and they just take it way too seriously, even behind the scenes. I think that's a good side element for comedy that you could throw in there every now and then to break up the main action. Yeah, like they keep going to the marketing department, like asking, like, what, what could I do? Like, what? well, you know, what's my inspiration? Yeah, this is like, not period specific. Yeah, it's like you're Attila the Hun. Just act like Attila the Hun. Like this isn't like a big deal. Like, no, I. That's absolutely. I think that would be beautiful. So. Yeah. So sorry. Continue. No, no, no. Yeah. So Larry gets noticed on the street. Someone's like, "Oh my God, you're the museum dude. I need like a selfie." And Larry's like, "Of course, like I have no idea what you're talking about. But if you want to think I'm somebody, I'll, like obviously, like you can take a selfie with me, right?" And more and more, he's walking down the street. More and more people seem to, to recognize him. He's like, I didn't, what, the, what is hell is going on? Like, I, I don't understand why people recognize me. But he's starting to get that, that recognition that he always wanted from wanting to be an inventor. Until somebody winds up quoting something he said in an exhibit. And I don't know if it's something embarrassing. Like, maybe he's talking about a personal story from his life that no one else knows. And he's maybe, like, he's having an intimate moment with Sacagawea. And, like, someone brings it up, and he realizes, like, there's only one way somebody would know that, and it's if they were watching me talk to Sacagawea or something like that. So he realizes the whole thing is fake, right? World comes crashing down on him. End of Act 2. Like, again, he's now having to come with the realization that he's been had, and what he's what is he going to do about it? So meanwhile— Can I interject one more time? Yeah, absolutely. You could have— the actor who takes themselves way too seriously become jealous of the guy who's not even an actor because he's getting this level of fame. Like that's a natural conflict right there. Mm -hmm. I also thought you might, after you brought that, I was like, Oh, another thing would be is like, after he's getting this and he's questioning it, if he sees the person who plays Attila the sun, Attila the sun, Attila the hun, (laughs) like eating in a, in a restaurant in New York, like outside. He's like, that's Attila the Hun. What is Attila the Hun doing out here? And then again, it's starting to put it together like, oh my God, this whole thing was a giant room. Yes. Like, um, so again, I think having the the actor in there, definitely there's a lot of potential with how we could have the reveal and how Larry winds up finding out or what he does. But so the whole time, Larry and Rebecca, who at this point, Rebecca is no longer like the concierge or like the person who tours the thing. She's going to be one of the marketing people. Is starting to get, they're starting to get closer and stuff like that because again it doesn't take place over just three days like this is going to be over a span of time. Um, it's starting to feel bad because you know almost like what happens in the Truman Show. Um, and she's like she's starting to, to have a, a crisis of conscience about this whole thing. Like okay, like it was kind of funny or a, an interesting experiment, but now we're actually kind of humiliating this guy and putting his life out there. Like things he would have never told people. 
he's now you know it, it are winding coming out so but in true comedy and movie fashion before she has the opportunity to come clean to larry larry has realized on the streets that the whole thing was fake and larry returns basically for a giant showdown to sabotage the show because now he realizes the whole thing's fake so he's going to start doing things intentionally to basically screw the whole show up and make it look weird and basically expose everybody for for what they did to him right so at that point you know the whole thing's going to come crashing down we'll have a little bit of a makeup session or something like that between rebecca and larry the whole thing, you know, has to have kind of, I think, a nice happy ending at the end. So, you know, they make up. Larry winds up being offered a position on a kid's show where he kind of explains history to kids and stuff like that. Maybe something very similar to the security guard he was playing. But now he's in on the joke. Maybe, as you said, our Attila the Hun actor winds up coming to the show as well. And then Rebecca winds up being the producer and head writer. So, like, everybody kind of oh, gets what they want. I love that. So, and again, the addition of the actor, I think, actually adds to it, too, because now they actually, there's another person who actually got something beneficial out of the whole thing. So, that's how the whole movie winds up wrapping up, is, you know, everyone, is Larry winds up getting his, his, his fame. He might not be an inventor, but he's still, you know, he, at that point, earned what, because of everything he went through, and he has an appreciation for history and all that, so Larry's in, earned this position. Rebecca realizes that she should do things the right way she's actually very talented with the marketing and all that so like i said the the big portion of like you know the quintessential comedy of it like this is the layout i just think some of the antics and stuff like that i don't know if we want to try and get into that or like you said if yours is a little long i think that's a good frame for people to understand where this comedy would be coming from without us getting into the actual jokes but that's how i would turn this into more of a a comedy comedy no i think the truman show comparison is brilliant and, and it lends itself to this movie very well. And then as we work through it, you have three characters that have arcs, mm-hmm. which how much do we complain about people having no arc in movies? And now you have three. And I think having the actor be an initial enemy would work too, because it's a conflict, but not one that can't be resolved by the end of the movie. And now they're working on this show together and everybody's got what they want. Yeah. So, yeah, well done. Thank you, sir. So, now I would love to hear your miniseries for this. Um, All right, I that was a great a miniseries, miniseries, so we'll jump right into... <laughs> it, it was a brief miniseries. <laughs> um, I'm always in my head going for the HBO miniseries, so that's kind of the format I stuck to. Um, the only note I have, I didn't have a, uh, compare it to this kind of section, but I did have one recast. Okay. I'm taking Ben Siller out. What? I thought for sure this was going to be Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, No, you know what? I don't, I don't have, I don't have a problem with Robin Williams as Teddy. I loved Robin as Teddy. I was just being a sarcastic prick in this situation. Oh, okay. Good, good. All right. (laughs) So, I'm recasting him with Shia LaBeouf. Oh, okay. The so he's reason be is younger. he can do the goofy comedy, even Stevens, the first Transformers. But I think he's way more believable as a fuck up <laughs> who would lose job after job. Do you agree? 
I'm not gonna disagree. I just like that that was the direction you went to say. He's a much more, because he actually is a fuck up. Has he made a movie anytime recently? Like, uh, just Boy do was it. Recent. Just do it. Also, he's old enough to have a ten-year-old son, believably. So that's my big change there. Okay. Uh, so this is a five-part miniseries. Episode one: A sickly child. Larry Daly is a high school teacher who is, while passionate about history, has become burned out on the cycle of new school years and unruly, uninterested teens. He's been attempting to write a historical fiction novel centered on Teddy Roosevelt. Did I say Cody Roosevelt? <laughs> That's his cousin. Teddy. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. But has struggled with writer's block. Uh, on his lunch breaks at school, he smokes weed in his car. Just kind of a representation of how burnt out he is. At home, Larry mostly sleepwalks through his marriage, giving very little to his wife, Alice. You know, we could have a few scenes of him failing to meet his responsibilities. But he's a good father to his son, Nick. And the two bond over the computer game Civilization. Brett, are you, are you familiar with that game? I am familiar with that game, yeah. All right, good. Uh, Larry using his history background to illuminate history for Nick through the game. Um, now, here, here, here we go. All of this is going to be cross-cut with a young Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt's youth was largely shaped by his poor health and asthma. Uh, he experienced sudden nighttime asthma attacks that caused the experience of being smothered to death. If you thought I got this part from Wikipedia, you're right. <laughs> um, despite his illness, he was still an interject, interject, energetic and mischievous child. Uh, he had a lifelong interest in zoology uh, he saw a dead seal at seven in a local market, and after obtaining the seal's head, Roosevelt and two cousins formed what they called the Roosevelt Museum, Museum of Natural History. Um, apparently, he also learned the rudimentary elements of taxidermy. In other words, Roosevelt makes a lot of sense to be in a museum. I didn't really land the plane there, but that's kind of the end of episode one. It's just mostly a setup. We're going to juxtapose Larry's life with Teddy's life. Okay. Episode two, a death in the family. Uh, the episode's going to open with Larry at work, smoking a joint in the bleachers at the high school football field that he works at. He gets a call from his wife, letting him know that her mother has been in a serious car accident. Uh, Larry leaves work to meet his wife at the hospital. Upon arrival to the hospital, Larry hugs Alice to comfort her, but Alice immediately smells the weed and whispers in anger, I can't believe you got high on the way to the hospital right now. Larry explains that he was already smoking weed when she called. <laughs> his wife says, oh, that's, that's great, Larry. That's great judgment. Smoke weed at school. It's fine. Spoiler, it's not fine. <laughs> uh, Alice asks Larry to either go back to work or go home. She doesn't want him at the hospital, so Larry leaves. 
And now we're going to cut to Teddy Roosevelt working in his office when an assistant arrives to inform him that his wife has given birth a week early. The baby is fine, but his wife has fallen ill. Teddy rushes home. Back at the Daly household, Larry and Nick play Civ with Larry playing as Teddy Roosevelt. Alice returns home from the hospital and Larry leaps up and walks to the kitchen. Cut to Teddy at his wife's bedside. Things are looking grave and Teddy talks to his unconscious wife, speaking words of comfort and love. A doctor enters the room and finds Teddy with his face buried on his wife's stomach. The doctor asks, Minority Leader Roosevelt, I'd like to check her vitals if you'll allow, sir. Teddy raises his head, tears streaming down his face. No need, my boy. She's gone. And we're going to cut back to the daily kitchen as a solemn Alice informs Larry, my mother, she's gone. Larry tries to comfort his wife, but she recoils. I want a divorce. Roll credits. I love that transition. Basically, Teddy also, uh, you know, giving the news that uh, Alice's mother has died. Yeah, so interesting fact about Teddy Roosevelt. Did you know that his first wife and mother died on the same day? I did know that. You but, did? Yeah, I, I'm a big Teddy Roosevelt fan, so. Ooh, okay, I'm excited then. All right, episode three. Nearer, my God, to thee. We open with Larry's morning routine, or Larry's new morning routine. He wakes up on the couch with a stiff neck and a sore back. He doesn't bother showering and picks up a pile of clothes on the floor, putting them on for work. In the kitchen, he pours a cup of coffee, then pulls a hidden flask from the cupboard, pouring a splash in. His wife enters the kitchen with an awkward tension. She asks if he's had any luck with apartments. Larry replies that he's got a few calls in, and Alice coldly states, It's been almost a month. If we're going to work through this, I'm going to need my space. We cut to Teddy Roosevelt, now the vice president of the United States. An aide enters the office with a stack of papers. Vice President Roosevelt, the president wanted you to review this so that you two can discuss it when he returns from the Temple of Music. Back at school, we find Larry sitting at his teacher's desk while his students take a test. Larry, meanwhile, has his laptop open for the appearances of work, but he's actually playing Civ. Okay. Larry opens a desk drawer and retrieves a flask. He covertly pours more liquor into the thermos that he brought to work and realizes the flask is empty. He informs his class that he'll be back and to please continue to work quietly. Larry journeys to his car and decides to smoke a joint. Larry is careless, openly drinking from the flask as he, finish, as he finishes his joint. Little does he know, a student named Leon Cusack is taking a video of him on his cell phone. Later in the day, Larry is teaching his final class, and as it concludes, the students begin to file out, save for the student Leon. Larry is playing Civ and finally realizes Leon is the only one left. 
Hey, uh, Leon, everything good, man? I got to lock up the classroom. Le or Leon responds, oh, yeah, my bad. I just got caught up in this viral video. Leon goes on to describe the footage of Larry drinking and smoking weed on school property and threatens to take the footage to the principal unless Larry gives Leon a no-show A for his class and that the teacher supply him with free weed and booze. Larry, enraged, grabs Leon by the shirt just as the vice principal enters the classroom. We cut to the Temple of Music where President McKinley is shot twice in the stomach by an assassin who concealed his pistol in a handkerchief. And we're going to cut back to Larry, who pulls up to a Motel 6 and removes his box items from school along with a trash bag full of clothes. We cut back to McKinley on his deathbed, surrounded by family and Vice President Roosevelt. The group softly sings his favorite hymn, Near My God to Thee. As McKinley passes away, the song continues to play as presidential age then swear in Teddy. The hymn continues as we go into our next scene. Larry passed out in the hotel bed, Civ 5 loaded on his computer, frozen on a Teddy Roosevelt cutscene. Larry's phone rings and it's his son, but Larry fails to waken. We zoom in on the laptop screen of Teddy and an internet pop-up shows up. It's a now hiring promotion for the American Museum of Natural History. Roll credits. Episode four, the Panama Rebellion. Teddy is now the president of the United States and he's helping coordinate and provide aid to the people of Panama as they try to form their own independence from Colombia. Meanwhile, Larry is working night security at the museum so let me pause. We complained both about the short time span. My chop shop clearly spans a great deal of time. I, I don't necessarily cover that, but just wanted to point that out. Okay. Um, so Larry's working night security at the museum, and he's also working part-time as a tour guide because he loves history. He wants to share that. Uh, during the night, he also works on his Teddy novel, his Teddy Roosevelt novel, which uh, has taken off tremendously since he began working at the museum. His writer, writer's block is gone. Uh, Larry and his wife are still separated, but Larry has moved to an apartment. And one Saturday afternoon on his off day, he gets a call at home from his wife. She's frantic, stating Nick is missing and asking if he's with Larry. Larry says no but assures his wife that he's going to go look and he will find him. As he opens his apartment door to leave, he finds Nick there, who was about to knock on his door. Uh, we're going to cut to some more Teddy planning for Panama. I don't really have much on that. In, in grand tradition, I'll start to speed up and lose steam towards the end, but... <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, so... Larry and his wife agree on Nick staying with Larry for the summer because the school year is about to end soon. Uh, Larry has kind of turned around his life a little bit. so and, and Nick wants to be with Larry. So that's how that episode is going to end. 
So we're going to go to episode four, which is Square Deal. Things with Larry and his son are going great over the summer, and, and Larry and his wife seem to be building back to maybe being a couple again. Meanwhile, Teddy is campaigning for re-election in 1904, but his campaign, campaign, his campaign is dogged by accusations of corruption and corporate donations. Political cartoons paint him as in being in Standard Oil's pocket. And back to Larry, he's wrapping up a tour of the museum and heads to the break room for lunch. As he enters, Dick Van Dyke and Mickey Rooney are eating their lunch at the tables. And they're going to try to bring Larry in on the scheme they're planning. They're, they're going to retire, but before they do, they're going to steal millions worth of, of product from the museum and then flee to the tropics. But Larry refuses. He stands on his integrity. Things are going well in his life. He's like, do what you have to do. I'm not going to be involved in it. And then we're going to cut to Teddy, who's giving a speech to supporters, informing them that he's returned the Standard Oil money and that if he is reelected as president, he intends to give the people of the United States a square deal. Roll credits. And now we're going to move to the fifth and final episode called Bull Moose. We're going to open with Teddy campaigning in 1912 in Milwaukee. When a delusional saloon keeper shoots him point blank in the chest, Teddy collapses as a gunman is rushed by security. Meanwhile, Larry is working the night shift where the frame up job from this movie occurs again. Uh, things look grim for Teddy. One note, I want this is a prestige drama, so I wanted to feel like the consequences at the end was a much more hopeless situation. Okay. So we're going to cut back to Teddy. And the bullet is lodged in his chest after penetrating his steel eyeglass case and passing through a thick single-folded copy of his speech, which he was carrying in his jacket. Uh, the gunman is immediately disarmed by security, and Roosevelt shouts for the gunman not to be harmed. Basically, let's have have the police take him into custody, make sure he's not harmed, killed, lynched, anything. Let justice run its course. And Roosevelt assures the crowd that he's all right and then proceeds to make a 90-minute speech. Uh, while blood is kind of pouring from his chest, but... Being his background, he knows that it's not a mortal wound. And at the end, he finally says, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I've just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. And we're going to return to the present day where uh, Larry's in dire straits. And finally, in current day, Robin Williams as Teddy Roosevelt is going to show up on horseback and he's going to save the fucking day. Uh, and again, this is a prestige drama, so there's going to be gunfire involved. It's going to be a much more – I would compare it more to the end of Die Hard than the end of Night at the Museum. Okay. <laughs> Everything's going to shake out. Larry's going to be the hero. Robin Williams' Teddy is going to kind of make it look like Larry was the hero. The cops arrive. They commend Larry on a great job. 
shortly after his wife Alice and their son show up, they have a big group embrace. And uh, his wife says, hey, you know, maybe it's time for you to come home. And as they embrace, Larry looks up and sees the statue of Teddy Roosevelt in the background. And the statue just winks at him. And uh, roll credits on the finale. So I'm still there, Brett. Yeah, so I love the integration and the juxtaposition of Teddy's story with Larry's story. The only part in the whole thing that I get hung up on is the introduction of the magic of Teddy Roosevelt at the end. And you know why I did that, Brett? <laughs> Why'd you do that, Travis? Now y'all want season two, don't you? <laughs> I gotta know more. What? Why did Tessie you, come to you, life? You gotta close the story, but then you gotta give something. And I liked it because you brought it up in your chop shop. I'm not leaving out the possibility that Larry's crazy and maybe he went vigilante and, and fucked some people up. And uh, his obsession with Teddy Roosevelt kind of lets him be his Tyler Durden. I'm not ruling that out, but you got to renew me for season two to find out. I like that. The idea that he's his Tyler Durden uh, excites me more than the idea of him being magical. But that's that's fun. Exactly. Hey. Exactly. And I feel like that's one of those shows you could shoot one way and have options on season two on how you change what season one was. Mm -hmm. So that was my logic there. I will say at the beginning, I felt a little, maybe a little bit of election. Just the, absolutely. Yeah. yeah There's definitely a, a little, a touch of election in there, but I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, moving his shit into the hotel with the yeah. boxes. Yeah. No, I like that. Like I said, the uh, I really do like the idea of, of the two of them, the two stories kind of happening, co coinciding, and then basically kind of playing off of each other. So. Huh. Yeah, I could have done a better job of that, but I feel like there were a couple of natural connections. And, and I don't have to tell you, Teddy Roosevelt had a hell of a life. Yeah, he did. Also, it'd be interesting if you Larry's middle name wound up being Theodore. At some point, winds up getting, and that might be like from a child why he had such an obsession with Teddy Roosevelt. Was people would like maybe he had a grandfather or something that used to that immortalized Teddy Roosevelt, and that's why he had a middle name of Theodore or something like that. Yeah, little known fact: your middle name is actually Teddy Roosevelt, Brett Teddy Roosevelt Mosher. Oh wow, I didn't. That, I mean, it makes a lot more sense, honestly. <laughs> so, But yeah, <laughs> it, that was my HBO prestige version of this. I dig it. Like I said, I think that would be fine, especially, I mean, with it being five episodes, like that's that's nice and tight. So. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, what do you have up for us next? All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into some Blue Book. So I'm going to give you the market value, the budget of this movie, and then I want you to tell me what you think the gross U.S. and Canada and the gross worldwide of the movie was. So, market value, Travis, came in at $110 million, which I assume most of that was the cast. 
Yeah, god damn, I did not expect that high of a budget. Yeah, $110 million was the budget, the estimated budget for this. What do you think it made U.S. and Canada? Uh, I'm a little bit... Uh... I guess it's unfair. I know there's two sequels. You couldn't avoid that. So I know mm -hmm. it was a success. I'll say $435 million. A little over. A little over. Uh, U.S. and Canada was $250 million. Approximately $250 million. So it, okay. it about hey, doubled its budget. I guess it is 2006 budget. money. Yeah. It about doubled its budget in 2006. Just domestically. That's domestic, yep. What do you think worldwide, what do you think it did? I'll just stick with my 430. Okay. $575 million. Which is why it got two sequels. <laughs> yeah, that, that Dick Van Dyke money goes far god damn that's i'm depressed that it made that much but you have to remember, family family friendly movies are they're on a they're in a different league you know i don't think they're judged as harshly because really hell it is a, can i take my kid to this and will they sit here and watch this movie for an hour and a half while i can sit here and have some peace right like i think there's a yeah and you, i guess that's why they're always an hour and a half yeah, it's family-friendly movies. I feel like they have they get a little bit of an asterisk next to them. If you were gonna try and compare it to like a Dune, or honestly anything like a Crash or Wedding Crashers or anything like that, like they the way they make their money is just that I need a I it's parents that just need an hour and a half of peace where the the movie that they're watching doesn't make them want to gouge their eyes out. So I I could understand this movie making that that money. That's fair. That's fair. Alrighty. Tag and title. Travis, I'm going to give you an opportunity. So, tag and title. I'm going to give you three taglines. One tagline is an official tagline for 2006 Night of the Museum. One tagline will be a tagline from a movie I found adjacent. And one tagline is one by made by yours truly. I'm gonna give you an option. Do you want, do you want a hard tag and title this week, or do you want an, a an easier tag and title? Oh, you have two variants. I have two variants I can give you. Well, let me just say, is the difficult one you using taglines from the sequel and the the third movie in the trilogy? It is not. I did not use any other night of the museum taglines. Okay, then do what do what you think is most entertaining. Ooh. Okay. Here we go. All right, so here are your three taglines. Time flies when you're having fun. Larry's about to find his place in history where history comes to life. Those are your three taglines. The Larry one is a MacGuffin, or no, no, not a MacGuffin, a red herring. You wouldn't make it that easy. That's not the official tagline. Uh, the last one was what, where history comes to life? Where history comes to life. And what was the first? Time flies when you're having fun. 
time flies when you're having fun is the tagline for this movie. History comes to life. I'm going to guess ending in the cupboard. That's hysterical. Um, <laughs> Did I get it right? Because I didn't cheat. No. So time flies when you're having fun is 1989's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Damn it. Larry finds his place in history was my tagline. Where history comes to life is the official tagline for the movie. The alternate I had was Adventure Comes to Life, which was the 1995 Indian in the Cupboard tagline. <laughs> I swear, I did no research on Indian in the Cupboard, but this movie just reminded me of it so much for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah, that's hysterical that you thought I'd go, because I absolutely did have Indian in the Cupboard as one of my options. And I chose, I thought that that one, I felt Adventure Comes to Life was so close to when history comes to life, I felt it would be hard. That, that's why I thought that was a harder one, because I'm like, they, and then with, Larry, you know, Larry's about to find his place, they were all so close, it's like, any of them could have easily been the, the actual tagline. So I threw time flies because I thought that one at least had some differentiation there. But yeah, no, I swear I, I absolutely had an Indian in the cupboard tagline. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I should have known that it wasn't time flies when you're having fun because this shit was only three days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also don't know how much fun it was. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, do you that should be the Rotten Tomatoes review. <laughs> from the Hollywood Chop Shop. Um, Time doesn't really fly, and it's not really that fun. Oh, boy. Um, so do you have a time capsule for us this week? I do. It, it's a very brief one. Okay. Do you know the composer that works on this? Uh, is it Danny Elfman? Because the score felt <laughs> very 90s. Guess. I felt very Danny Elfman to me. <laughs> it's actually... Alan Silvestri, who I looked up because I chose him as the time capsule because I recognize him from one movie specifically. And it's one of the most iconic scores in, in cinema history, in my opinion. 1987's Predator. Oh, okay. And I thought, wow, such a weird contrast to the Predator score that he drummed up. But Looking at his uh, filmography, he did all three Back to the Future movies. And if you want to look up Alan Silvestri, which I suspect that you are, mm -hmm. he has got a wide, varied filmography in terms of the genre that he works in. And yet, I think he does several things well. For the most part, it feels like a generic Danny Elfman kind of score, but he's got some outliers. So it's, he's got an interesting filmography if you dig through it. Yeah. I'm seeing some adventure. Oh, he was the composer. So is composer the same as actually writing the score or was he just, I would assume that meant that he wrote the score, but he did a couple of the Avengers movies. Be yeah. I mean, Beowulf, not of the museum. I mean, long career. Yeah. Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump. The Predator. <laughs> well, you know. um, no, to your point, I mean, it. it's weird. It I looks... never was compelled by the music in this movie, but... 
Well, because I hate to say this, but it did feel like a, a poor man's Danny Elfman. Like, to me, I listened to the score, and I even have it in my notes where I'm like, oh, this feels very 90s adventure or 90s family-friendly movie. Like, it doesn't... It almost felt dated, but at the same time, because those are the movies I grew up with, it also felt familiar. Yeah, a little bit nostalgic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting to have that kind of name attached to it. I knew we were going to run a little bit long with the Chop Shop, so... Yeah, Alan Silvestri, and I think still working today. Yeah. His last movie was 2020 with The Witches, uh, which I believe that was a uh, Tim Burton, who Tim Burton used like uh, Elfman a lot, and then Pinocchio, which is in production right now. Uh, the Witches, I believe. Was this not a Tim Burton movie? Nope, it was Robert uh, Zemex. Zemeckis, which Zemeckis. Uh, he has worked with several times. Zemeckis, obviously, Back to the Future being the most prominent. Yeah. Very interesting. Cool. No, yes, sir. I, Where are we headed? That was a fun one. I I didn't even think about that. Huh. Uh, yeah, because the score wasn't particularly memorable, but it I mean, had a memorable was, composer it, behind it. Wasn't memorable, but it did stand out to me. It was. I mean, I I had a note about it. So, but yeah, I would never, if you played the score against many other 90s family, I wouldn't be able to pick it out of the bunch. So, all right. Agreed. With that, let's do our final verdicts. Um, I will go ahead and throw mine out there. I think I kind of touched on it at the beginning of the episode. I would not own this movie. Um, I don't think it is a particularly great movie. Um... I wouldn't say it's as, I would watch it over Gothica if we're going to compare it to other movies. I thought it was more enjoyable than that. I think in terms of a family-friendly movie, I, it is run-of-the-mill watchable. If your kid is obsessed with it, I'm sure on the fourth or fifth viewing of it, you'd want to blow your brains out. Um, but I think for a couple viewings here and there with you know uh, a younger family member, I, I think the movie has enough merit that you could sit down and watch it and in today's day and age play on your phone while it was going in the background and and not find it too irritating or find it engaging enough so i would never as a as a grown adult go out and seek this movie but it's not one that if i had to watch it i would be miserable doing so i think that's the best verdict i can give on it that's fair um if you're not a parent or you're not raising a young child, this movie's unwatchable. Please, it's radioactive. Stay away from it. <laughs> if you are a parent or raising a young child and they, like you said, Brett, if they express interest in watching it, you could do a lot worse. Um, not only from the perspective of just the content of the movie in terms of entertainment value, but if my kid wants to watch this movie and then ask questions about historical figures. I think that's a great jumping off point to education and just having conversations with your kid that can lead to some substance, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I'll give it the most mild of recommends if you are the perfect demographic for this movie and you are a parent and you have 
the parent of yours that enjoys, you know, Dick Van Dyke or any of the other pandering they do to old people. For a very specific person, this is a solid recommend to most people. And me specifically, I'll never watch this shit again. <laughs> and uh, unless you uh, throw in part two or part three, I'll never watch the sequels either, even though I could see some intriguing elements just through the use of history. Um, so I will tell you this. I will never throw in part three, and I'll tell you why. Because here is the here's the, the storyline. All right, I'm just going to give you a couple, couple sentences. At the Museum of Natural History, there's a new exhibit being unveiled. Uh, Larry Daly, who manages the night exhibit where the exhibits come to life uh, because of the tablet of Achman Ra, is in charge of the presentation. But when the exhibits go awry, Larry finds himself in trouble. He learns the tablet is corroding, so he does some research and learns that Cecil, the former museum guard, was at the site when the tablet was discovered. Uh, what? Yeah, there's your big red flag. He tells Larry that they were warned that if they remove it, it could mean the end. And Larry realizes this means the end of magic. He talks to Aquaman Ra, who says that he doesn't know anything, only his father, the pharaoh who uh, knows the tablet's secrets, which is in London, blah, 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 blah. Yes, the original three security guards from the first movie reappear, at which point it's like, no. Also, Nick Daly is reprised by Skylar Gizondo. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar who? with him. He uh he was in the vacation kind of soft reboot. Uh he was in the amazing Spider-Man. I don't know if you've watched any of the uh the HBO what is it the Righteous Gemstones? Uh, it's a Danny no Ride show. You're talking about uh you I think if you saw him you know exactly who he is. Uh but yeah, apparently he's supposed to be much older, which is Weird. I didn't realize that much time was supposed to pass in these, especially since Cecil, Gus, and Reginald seem pretty freaking old and should be pretty much dead by this point. So, well, the actors were all back. Yeah, all three of the original guards are Holy back in the shit. third movie. And Robin Williams. So this was God. He must have killed himself shortly after this movie. Coincidence? Yeah, I've heard some bad behind the scenes about the third movie regarding him so he did this and he did one other movie absolutely anything where he was the voice of dennis the dog and that is the end of his filmography yeah from what i've heard just as a tidbit he was having a tough time and basically had to have his lines fed to him through an earpiece so for that reason on top i will never watch the third yep totally agree Oh my god, Rebel Wilson's in it? I mean, just the poster looks terrible. The poster makes me hate this movie. Yeah, I, I can't believe this is a trilogy. Ugh. Yeah, so uh, rest assured, unless somehow we have a, a celebrity or fan choose a new trilogy and they decide to throw one of these two in, I'm never going to encourage us to watch it, so... Would that well, thank you, Brett. Normally, I would uh, hit you with a line from the movie, but uh, I got nothing. Bully! Yeah, you know, maybe this will be good for the open. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Wait, you mean for the closing, where I have to 
yeah, Jesus. <laughs> I only had one shot, I promise. Oh, man. Did you really try and match me here? This is going to be a fun episode, I can already tell. All right. We're partners. <laughs> Listen, older people might feel you know, intimidated or something. So I was thinking we could have a little more corner in the, in, in the waiting room. You know, give them a little corner in the wait. Oh, okay, I'm going to redo that part. Leading him to reluctantly take a position at a night guard at a natural mystery. History. God damn it, dude. <laughs> <laughs>